News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it has certainly been a very hot topic this week. Alleged Chinese interference in elections in Canada. How unusual is this? Well, we know that the opposition conservatives are calling on the government to come up with a robust plan to counter this alleged foreign interference. What should that plan actually look like? Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Akshay Singh, a non-resident research fellow at the Council on International Policy. Akshay, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. What did you think when you heard about this report? Is this unusual? Because it seems like we've always kind of heard that China does engage in these types of activities. I think this report provides probably some of the most detail, if it's true, uh, activity information regarding what China's doing here in terms of an interference perspective. But, you know, um, if you compare it to what uh, other countries have released, for example, the FBI in the U.S., um, it is not, I think, that different than what we've seen in those countries. So definitely unique from a Canadian perspective to get a glimpse into this uh, window of foreign interference. But I would say it aligns, generally speaking, with some of the experience of our partners. Right, but given what we know, how other countries have tried and possibly failed in dealing with this, what could Canada possibly do? I think one of the things is actually other countries have uh, pieces of legislation that help them deal with it. And, you know, it is an ongoing challenge, as you've said, and it's not a 100% successful uh, effort at dealing with Chinese foreign interference, but there are pieces of legislation in those countries that help them at least try. And Canada doesn't have something similar. Uh, you know, in the U.S., they have a foreign agent uh, registration act uh, in australia they have something similar and the uk is putting together actually a package which is going through their house of commons to deal with foreign interference as well one thing canada might consider is thinking about a robust framework that at least provides them with some tools uh, for the government for agencies like CSIS and the rcmp to try and tackle these issues either legislatively or through prosecution if illegal things are happening so what kind of legislation are we talking about here? Like, how would you legislate this? Well, number one, uh, we have to define legally uh, what is acceptable in terms of foreign influence or not. So currently, CSIS uh, has a mandate where it acts as, hey, you know, foreign interference is essentially anything that is clandestine or deceptive or constituting a threat to a person. And if this activity happens, it will investigate it. But CSIS is not a law enforcement organization. It's an intelligence service. They provide advice to the government of Canada. Um, it's not illegal for you to, you know, represent a foreign government's interest in Canada, uh, as it would be if you did so in the United States without registering first with the government. So, you know, having legislation that says, first of all, if you are in Canada acting on behalf of the interests of a foreign government, you need to register on some kind of a document or website or portal to make it publicly known that you're doing so, I think, is a positive step in the right direction. Obviously, there need to be rules about what kind of registrations are required and what kind of activity we're talking about. But at least we can get to get a sense of, okay, who's doing what? And that way, public officials can look people up and see, hey, this person is acting on behalf of the interests of the government of XYZ country. And therefore, I got to conduct myself accordingly. Without that, it's pretty much a free-for-all. Which is what we have right now, do you think? I think to some extent, unfortunately, it has been normalized. And I think the fact that CSIS and CSC have come out in the last two to three years, very vocally through their public reports, through comments by Director David Vigneault and through other uh, officials, that China poses a massive problem, is an indication that we are at the stage where we're seeing an increase in 
uh, foreign uh, foreign interference from China, and we're starting to come up against a barrier of having not having the tools required to deal with it adequately. And I think these allegations by the global uh, by the Global News article by Sam Cooper kind of hint to that thing. You know, if these activities are happening in Canada, realistically, what can we do about it? And currently, I'm not confident we have the legal framework to actually prosecute against these individuals. Right. So, do, has anything changed? You think is the appetite there? I think uh, you know. The fact that CSIS and CSC is actually saying things about these publicly indicates that there is um, some political support for them to go out there and make these comments. Because, you know, you can't just as a public servant go out there and start uh, accusing countries of conducting interference operations without obviously getting everything checked off by the proper authorities. Uh, so I think um, there is an appetite, especially uh, you know, in the public generally, of course, but also in, the, in, in organizations like CSIS and CSC to try and ad- address these issues. Uh, and I think some of the work that we've seen in the last little while from this government indicates they're starting to think about China, especially, for example, through the upcoming Indo-Pacific strategy, which was just recently, some details were released by the Global Mail. They're starting to think about China as a country that doesn't just, you know, ex- it's not like Germany or France. You know, you can't treat them like an open democratic country. There are specific things that come along with that relationship that we need to think about, things like threat activities, things like foreign interference. Right. Okay. More for us to think about. Actually, thanks so much for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to say good morning to Raji Solhal. We have some very important information to impart this morning. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, we're talking about Remembrance Day events that are happening. Now, of course, uh, we haven't been able to gather for a couple of years. So this will be the first time that, uh, for example, children across BC, some of them will be having their first Remembrance Day assembly. Those are happening today in elementary and high schools. Um, And yeah, that's going to be the first time, I guess, occasion uh, for my kids to be exposed to Remembrance Day because they're too little. And, you know, I I haven't known how to talk to them about war, about Remembrance Day. We ended up yesterday having a discussion about how we enjoy certain freedoms in life and that these freedoms have been protected by uh, people, soldiers, veterans who have uh, fought. And uh, they're still wrapping their minds around that. But my grandfather, Chan Sohol, he fought for the British in the Second World War. And so that was one way for me to talk about that. And, and everyone has some kind right. of a connection in that So way. true. So true. That's exactly how we talked about it with, with my kids, too. On both sides of the family, we had family members that we could talk about who had served uh, one in the First World War and one in the Second World War that we, you know, that there was a family story about. There have been others, too. But it's, it is important to talk to kids about, and I, I, I'm thinking at this point, that it's probably going to be fairly busy tomorrow. Don't you think so, too, because of parents exactly like you? Oh, I think so. And wanting to expose their kids and teach their kids about our history. Now, the longest happening Remembrance Day event that's uh, been happening since 1924 here is taking place at the Victory Square Cenotaph. That's on West Hastings. They're going to do a last post, a lament, changing of the guard, wreath laying, all of that, a parade to honor the veterans. And that gets underway at 10 a.m. tomorrow. And then, Simi, UBC is going to have their own event. They're doing a musical performance, a short readings. Again, that's around 10.30 tomorrow morning. And Trout Lake is doing one. Mountain View Cemetery on Fraser Street is going to ring a bell toll. They'll, they'll ring it 11 times. And brass players and the Vancouver Youth Choir will perform. 
That gets underway at 10.30. The Japanese-Canadian War Memorial at Stanley Park is also going to do a small gathering there. And then uh, in Burnaby, Simi, the ceremony will be at Confederation Park. And a parade is going to leave from the McGill Library at 10.30. You can also head to Bonser Park Cenotaph. And in Coquitlam, it's happening at the Canadian Legion Branch. <clears throat> There's a couple happening also in Delta, in Ladner. It's happening at the North Delta Social Heart Plaza, as well as the Ladner Memorial mm. Cenotaph. That's the one that so I used to go to every year because oh, that was really? right down the road from my house. And so we went to that, took the kids, you know, when they were little, which is because we could walk down there and, and uh, see that ceremony. That's a beautiful one that they do. I, I love that all these communities, you know, get involved and have their own you know, versions of this. You, you talked about so many there, which is great. I mean, Langley's got one. Maple Ridge has one. New Westminster has one. Uh, North Vancouver has one. So the Victoria Park Cenotaph, I guess that's where you'll be going. Yeah, actually, we're going to go there. And, um, <clears throat> you know, the one in Langley that some of my friends said they're going to go to, they're going to it because there's going to be a singing of Amazing Grace as well as oh, an beautiful. invitation prayer. So uh, that one will be, like you said, everyone's doing something a little bit different and I, I think that after having not gathered for a couple of years, it's important that if you can, you get out to it, especially with kids or grandkids and, and expose them to some yes. of our history. You know, one of my kids said to me, because um, I was showing her pictures of veterans, and she said, um, they're all very old. So does that mean war doesn't happen anymore? And, and Canadians aren't, uh, Canadian soldiers aren't fighting anymore for the, this word I taught her freedoms. And I said, well, it's so interesting. So we had a you know, whole, that was a jumping yes. off point for us to have a whole other conversation. Oh, kids, right? With those questions, you, you try to explain one thing and they, you know, you end up explaining a lot more than you had intended at that point. Always. But those are very good points too, because that also, I think, reflects how important it is for us to get out every year. Uh, for instance, when you and I were growing up, you know, Raji, it was very normal and regular to see Second World War veterans at these ceremonies. And that is yeah. increasingly rare now because of the advanced age of some of these veterans. So, you know, we we have to keep that in mind why it's important to go and, and have a chance to commemorate these things with people with that lived experience. Oh, absolutely. And for them to in turn see how much we appreciate their sacrifice. I've, I've talked to veterans in the past um, and interviewed them where they've said Remembrance Day is important for them because it's a reminder that people do see them, do appreciate them, do appreciate their service for our country. So true. Okay, so important to do that tomorrow. I think it probably will be pretty busy out there. And so will you walk over there and, and you know, make sure that everybody, you can, they can see the crowds too? Yeah, and we um we drew poppies yesterday, oh, nice. me and the kids after dinner, and uh, I played them a poem. I played them in Fla Flanders Field. They'll hear it at school today, probably for one of my kids who goes to French immersion. She'll get to hear it in French as well. And um, yeah, they're at the nice. you know they're four and six now, so I feel like I can start to talk about these things with them. You really can. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that, Raji. Thank you. Thanks, Simi. This is mornings with Simi. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com 
and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Well, if you love going to a thrift store and getting a good deal, here is some news for you this morning. There is a new Value Village store, brand new, big one, opening today. But it's the location that has people talking this morning. Our Raji Sohal is with us for more. What is Value Village up to, Raji? <laughs> yeah, they're opening in South Granville, but it's not going to be a regular Value Village. It's going to be a boutique version. So smaller than the other Value Villages. But more importantly, you can expect that the stuff inside is going to be edited, right? So it's going to be luxury stuff. It's going to be like nice, high quality handbags and clothes. Now, I am a big fan of thrifting, Simi, but it does take a lot of time to rifle through all those racks, right? So it, admittedly, I don't get to do it much these days, but it's that thrill of the find that it's all about. You You just hope that in those racks, you're going to find something that's unique or special, something for me, I love vintage stuff. Uh, so, and don't make fun of me, but that's considered like 1980s <laughs> and earlier. <laughs> and, and I like stuff that doesn't look like all the stuff they sell in box stores, right? So ultimately you hope you're going to find that diamond in the rough. And I have had success. So I collect uh, vintage charm bracelets. Um, and I've found, once I found a Dior dress, Christian Dior dress made in the 60s, perfect conditions in me, 10 dollars. Wow. I've had a I found a blouse that's worth uh probably $400 that I got for $4. But that's become increasingly hard to do in the last 10 years with thrift shopping at Value Village, Salvation Army, the Goodwills out there because more people more people have just come to appreciate uh vintage stuff. So now these thrift stores they've they've all hired specialized uh, pickers as they call them and they have a trained eye for quality for the names to look out for they know about buttons and tags and things like that so they will price this stuff so high now that it's even it's hard to refer to some of these stores as thrift shops and and overall people are already mad about how these stores have started to operate and they've hiked their prices across the board i'm talking even about dollar store items like you can go into these stores now and and see stuff you'd find at the dollar store but it's priced higher at the thrift store and there's like reddit forums about it simi there's uh you can check it check out the tags on instagram and you'll see people complaining with uh, examples that they've found in the store so i talked to Jarrett Vaughn, he's a marketing prof at UBC Sauter School of Business about Value Village, a thrift store, taking this kind of boutique direction in an upscale part of town. I think fundamentally right now, Value Village has a PR problem. The PR problem, I think, relates to the fact that a lot of people have found really high prices at Value Village for things that should be free or really cheap, like an empty wine bottle or empty mason jars. There have been reports of these types of things being sold for maybe 15 or $20. People say they can buy an, an empty wine bottle at Valley Village. It doesn't come with any wine and it's more expensive than the actual wine you would get if you were to buy it at the liquor store. And so um, I, think, I think Valley Village has some challenges in this area. I think the reality is that people do want to shop for used items at a premium price. It's not a problem. There are lots of consignment shops and other organizations already doing this model. I think the question really is, is like, do people respect Value Village enough to pay attention to what they're doing in their boutique stores and, and actually start shopping on them at them? I don't know. I find that's a bit of an oxymoron, like Value Village and boutique, you know? Yes. Yeah. So that's going to be the major marketing challenge for them. Here's Prof. Jarrett Vaughn again. 
I think it's a reasonable business decision to to try to funnel some of their fancier, more luxurious, higher end, more exclusive items into that store um, so that people uh, who can afford it are able to go there and purchase. But the reality is it's a different market segment. Uh, they are they're focusing on a different type of individual who has a different value set than the shopper who's going to the regular Valley Village that they've known for the last decades as a as a college student, I mean, even as a professional, I've often shopped at Valley Village because you can find really cool stuff. I'm not necessarily going there because I want it to be super cheap. I'm going there because I want to find something really interesting that I wouldn't be able to find maybe in a regular store. And so I think there is a set of consumers that still have that value system and are interested to engage in shopping in more expensive used goods stores. I think secondhand clothing has had a renaissance. I don't think that this is new. I think, to be quite honest, we think Valley Village is really late to the game in this area. And so I don't think that this is signaling like, oh, people are more interested in used clothing now. I think that's been going on for a long, long time. You know, we'll see what the economic fallout is with the potential of an upcoming recession and how this impacts shoppers who go to places like this. Um, I suspect that the impact will be fairly limited uh, because uh, people who are looking to buy fancy items at uh, boutique stores like this have probably a reasonable income. And so I, I think I think Valley Village is a little bit late to the game. And I, and I don't think Valley Village, Valley Village has ever been setting the trend. Um, they've been behind the marketplace in many scenarios and kind of missed the mark. So, uh, especially when it comes to their pricing. So I think Valley Village is, they're just playing catch up at this point. Um, I think that it's really interesting that they've chosen specifically South Granville because it is a boutique shopping area with very limited corporate brands. So interesting, Raji. I do wonder then in hearing about this, as your guest was saying, has Valley Village kind of forgotten about their customer? Yeah. Yes, I think I'm their target market. I love thrift shopping. I love uh, to hunt for something special and new uh, or that's old and give it a new life. Um, I probably wouldn't shop there, Simi. I'm not looking to spend a ton. I want, you know, the thrill of the, the find, the hunt, and I want something for a good deal. So I'm their target market and I don't think I'm going to be shopping there. Yeah, I, you know, people go there because they want something that is like dirt, dirt, dirt cheap if you want something like boutique for you you probably would go you already know about a different place that you would go that would have that product yeah i'm going online for that but you know what i will say this south granville is a great like shopping district for just browsing right for window shopping will i walk in sure thing am i bound to drop a dime or my credit card down for something no i don't think Mm. so that is so interesting to me i'm not one of like i'm not a thrift store person um, I just don't, I, I don't have the patience to do the digging through the rack. My cousin is like that. We'd go to the same store and she'd find something fantastic. And I'd be like, where did that come from? I never even saw that. Cause I'm going <laughs> to buy what the mannequin is wearing. I'm going to walk in and go, Oh, I like that in the window. I'll take that right there. I think it's an art form. Oh, it is. Like there is a real community of thrifters. In fact, our John Strait, who comes on and does the news with you off the top of our show, uh, he's a thrifter as well. And we text each other our finds and what we, (laughs) where we found them and that kind of thing. People who thrift in the community are also pretty protective about their sources where they do find really good stuff. You don't want others to get in your way of finding that thing. Oh, that is so interesting. Raji, thank you for that. Thanks, Simi. And This is Mornings with Simi. 
This week, we heard about health ministers from across Canada, you know, meeting here in Vancouver for the first time since 2018. This was supposed to be uh, significant. We thought perhaps they were going to strike a deal. There would be some changes for healthcare systems. Certainly provincial health ministers from across the country felt there was some hope for that. And then it kind of all fell apart, didn't it? They wanted the federal government to boost health care funding, but in the end, there was no commitment for that from the federal government. So how are healthcare leaders reacting to this? Joining us now to talk about it is Linda Silas, who's the head of the Canadian Federation of Nurses. Linda, thanks for being here. Good morning, Sydney. So how did you feel when you heard the news that this, was, this wasn't going anywhere? Well, we were appalled, sucker punch, uh, surprise. You know, there, there was a variety of emotion going through uh, around noon hour on Tuesday because, like you said in your intro, we thought we were making great project, to, uh, great progress to start working on uh, retention, on return and recruitment initiatives uh, for nurses and others. And then everything blew up. Okay, so we heard this from Adrian Dix, the health minister, yesterday uh, here in BC, too, that they they felt they had been given some indications that the federal government was willing to come to the table to make some progress. So are you saying the Canadian Federation of Nurses also had those signs and signals? Yes, uh, for sure. We, we've we been meeting with the federal health minister, Minister Duclos, uh, a lot. Uh, I said to him at 4 o'clock on Tuesday when we met after the press conference, you're the federal health minister I've met the most, even uh, with the pandemic going on. Uh, minister Duclos is uh, hard on working on the crisis in health human resources. He's meeting with everyone. So we thought uh, that a plan would be there and we would start working on solutions and funded solution, I have to add, because we heard the prime minister saying that there is more money. Of course, there was no details and nobody expected details in the 30 seconds clip, but we expected details at the federal, provincial, territorial health ministers to start that ball rolling not the 35% increase that premiers are asking right away, but something to address the health human resource crisis, which are closing ERs across this country, which are closing uh, uh, labor delivery units. Uh, There's cancer treatments, uh, surgeries, all kinds of treatments that are being delayed because we don't have enough nurses, we don't have enough health care workers and professionals every day. And so when you heard there was nothing... Do you plan on going back to the federal health minister to say, hey, what what the heck happened here? It's not only his fault or the federal government. It's all the uh, federal, provincial, territorial ministers uh, and the premiers. Uh, there's been too much political game with a crisis. And if I take you back to when COVID arrived on their land in January of 2020, uh, everyone was working together. You had premiers, you had ministers of health, you had unions, you had employers meeting, you know, sometimes every two, three days to try to see how could we protect the public and how can we protect healthcare workers and our healthcare system. This uh, trickled down, but what we forgot is the impact it was going to have on the healthcare workforce 
And that, of course, having an impact on patients not receiving their treatment or waiting for their treatment. And this is the crisis of today. This is the public health crisis of today is our shortage of healthcare workers of all sorts. And the federal government and the province and territories realize it. But now it's this battle of, I want 35% uh, transfer payments or nothing else. And uh, we can't wait for that negotiations to happen. We need actions today. So you feel that perhaps nurses are being caught in this kind of political power struggle? Once again, once again, nurses are being asked to hold on to the strings of health care and just hold on and pray that uh, things will get better. And we were clear to ministers of health that they're burning out, they're fed up, they've had enough. Uh, they need to see some light at the, out of uh, the end of the tunnel. If not, one in two are predicting uh, that they're going to s- switch jobs. And in BC, the last survey I saw was about 60% were saying, I want to switch jobs. Doesn't mean they will leave healthcare completely, but they will switch jobs. And that's a very high cost to the employer, but also a very big loss into the experience, into the patient safety protection. You can't replace a new grad with a 25-year-old experienced nurse on a specialized unit. So what happens now then, Linda? Well, right now, as we're talking, I'm reviewing the uh, federal government plan that they presented to the health ministers and see how uh, we can propose changes, how we can go back at the table uh, with uh, not different solutions, because, you know, the solutions are simple. We have to fix the workplace. We have to reduce the eliminate, not reduce, eliminate the violence. We have to reduce the workload. We have to bring some flexibility and respect to the nursing workforce. That's how they will stay, and that's how they come back to nursing. We have to help our new students. So all of that is, you know, in some language, very simple, but how do we bridge the politics between how the federal government can help and how will the province and the territories uh, accept that help? Uh, One of the suggestions we had, maybe we go directly to uh, health employers that are willing to work with us and uh, the governments and try to bypass all of this uh, political bickering. Now, Linda, in your position then, is there any province that you have seen that is kind of willing to step up and start talking to nurses seriously about these issues? Well, they are all willing to uh, step up, uh, you know, from British Columbia to Newfoundland, Labrador. They all have a plan on paper. Some goes further than others. Some are more explicit, but they all need uh, funding. The employers need uh, funding for retention programs, for mentoring programs for our senior nurses, uh, preceptorship programs for new grads, for internationally educated. They can't do that at the the end of their uh, death. Uh, And uh, the federal government is ready to help. So for us, it's how do we bring the two sides together? It's probably the toughest bargaining sessions I've ever been in. I've negotiated multiple collective agreement, I guarantee you. Really? So this is as tough as you've ever seen it? Yeah, because of uh, the relationship between the province and the uh, federal government. Uh, it's really, uh, it's difficult. And healthcare workers uh, of all stripes 
are paying the price right now, and it's not fair. We were there during the pandemic. We stayed there. We worked the 24 hours, and honestly, we're still working the 24 hours. We're still working short every shift, and we stepped up. Now governments need to get along and step up. Listen, Linda, thank you so much for your time this morning. I thank you, and stay safe. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it has proven to be highly controversial. This report commissioned by the Vancouver Police Department on the cost of the city's social safety net, particularly for the downtown east side. Now, hey, nobody is arguing about the need to do things differently, the need for more accountability for the money spent on the downtown east side. Absolutely. Sign me up. We need that. But what's being questioned here are the numbers, how they were reached. Let's talk more about that now. Joining us now is Mike Farnworth, BC's Minister for Public Safety. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Now, you've called the report misleading. Why is that? Well, when you look at the numbers and you see what they're talking about, the downtown east side, and, and when they're including more than <coughs> more than a billion dollars in, uh, in, in pension payments, in CPP, Canada Pension Plan payments, when you're including um, uh, uh, monies from, uh, you know, the charitable se- the charitable sector that's serving uh, in many cases the entire province that's just not accurate and that's what's so unfortunate is that there was no effort uh, by the authors of the report for example to reach out to the province to get um, you know to get numbers to uh, to get numbers from different ministries in terms of uh, in terms of what's being spent was some of that information that you're mentioning there, was that publicly available? Would it have been readily available if they had reached out to say, hey, we need some numbers here? A lot of information is actually very readily available. Um, you can go online and, and look at uh, what uh, is being spent in uh, provincial ministries on budgets, and the uh, the documents are publicly available. In fact, they're released by uh, they're released by government. Um, the budget estimates process takes place in the legislature. There's all that information on Hansard and requests to how much money is being spent in particular areas of, uh, of you know, in ministries and program spending. Um, you could have put a request into ministries to get a sense of, you know, to know what's being spent. Uh, you could have talked to, uh, to, 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 to BC Housing, for example. Uh, but there was no, no, no approach to government. So how did you feel that when you heard the Vancouver Police Department was bringing this up? Well, we heard that, saw that the, uh, the, the report was leaked, and I thought that was rather, you know, rather strange. Um, if this is, uh, you know, if, in my view, if you're trying to do a report like this and you want to get all the information, first off, it's odd you wouldn't have approached government. But I just thought it was unfortunate um, more than anything. I just thought it was really unfortunate that this report was done this way um, and that, uh, you know, it just, it's everyone who's looking at it going, this just doesn't add up. Right. Would you be willing to kind of sit down with the VPD and go through this and talk about these issues that they have raised? Well, the, the, we've already indicated, the uh, Premier designates already indicated that we need to be uh, working together. And we have had great relationships uh, in the past. And I don't see that uh, that that changing. Uh, there's been a lot of cooperation. That's, again, that was the other thing that, that, that I, I thought was a bit concerning, is that there's a lot of cooperation that does already take place between the VPD, between the city, and between the province. Uh, does there need to be uh, changes in approach? Uh, absolutely. In fact, the Premier-designate, uh, David Eby, has already indicated and has been talking about that, 
that there needs to be, and he was uh, out last night saying that there needs to be changes in terms of the province probably taking a more direct coordinating role in terms of the downtown east side because it really is uh, too much uh, for the city to take on by itself. Right. So you feel like those, those changes are coming. A lot of what was addressed then in Chief Palmer's press conference yesterday, do you feel like, hey, that's coming? The, uh, this is what the Premier-designate has been talking about, the need for a, a new approach in terms of the downtown east side, a recognition, I think, that the uh, you know this is a job that is too big for the city of Vancouver alone. And that means working with the city. And we, um, you know, the, the new mayor has indicated he wants to work with the province. We're looking forward to that. Um, you know, there's been a... a just for an example, on the fires that were in the uh, in the downtown east side, there was an executive coordinating committee um, put together, which included the VPD, which included the city, which included BC Housing, which including the province. Um, there's a, a everybody knows the need for cooperation, and I think that that's there's there's no lack of willingness uh, to make sure that that happens. Were you disappointed then that some of these actions that you talked about weren't taken, that they didn't reach out? I, well, I, I think all of us are, you know, disappointed when you see a report like this. The way that it was corked up is that, well, you, no one bothered to reach out to get uh, to the province. The authors of the report didn't bother to reach out to the to the province. I think that's unfortunate. What kind of changes do you think we need to make down there? You talked about, I think we all know things are not working, as you said there. Uh, what kind of changes do you think you, you'd like to see happen? Well, I think the uh, some of the key ones are, for the uh, to basically to to get rid of the uh, to get rid of the encampments to be able to find places to house those people who are in the in the encampments in the encampments for for example they're they're not safe for the people who are there they're they're an eyesore in terms of the uh, of the city uh, people you know don't feel safe uh, when they're in the we're in there in the uh, in the downtown east side in those areas and I think you know. That's got to change. There has to be some way of, of, of dealing with that. At the same time, um, you know, there's been a lot of work done on the mental health side of things, uh, on changes in, 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 in drug policy. Um, there needs to be, you know, we've, we've had the police complaint or the, the police uh, committee report uh, in terms of around increasing mental health supports to be able to assist the police and allowing them to be able to do their job and not always being uh, social workers, which too often they are. Right. You've also heard all the concerns from people about kind of catch and release, people being out. Uh, is that going to be addressed, do you think? is that Can we see some changes on that coming up? Well, there's already been uh, work done on that. That's one of the reasons why the Lepard butler report was commissioned and the recommendations were in place. And there were three of those recommendations already being acted on. And then others were uh, different areas of government policy already dealing with that. And then when it comes to some of the changes that have to happen, um, we have been meeting, uh, made our case clear to the federal government that there's got to be some changes at the criminal code level. So, for example, we have reverse onus on individuals who use a firearm in committing a violent crime. Well, I'd like to see that on, on individuals who are using weapons, uh, other weapons, such as knives, for example, uh, that uh, that way it does more, make it more difficult to get bail, for example, uh, to be able to get people um, you know, who are, who are violent uh, offenders off the streets. Right. All right. Well, you know what? I'm sure we'll be following up on this. Thank you so much for your time this morning. My pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi.
Well, safe to say, I think that blast of winter we got this week has many of us thinking about our gardens. You know, in the fall weather, you do certain things, but then you got the winter coming along and you think, well, wait a minute, what about, what am I supposed to do? Like, when's the best time to trim my trees? When should I get out there? What are the signs of my garden looking healthy for this time of year? Well, for that, we're turning now to Scott Gardner, who's a district manager at the Davy Tree Expert Company. Scott, thanks for being here. Ah, thanks for having me. So is this a good time to check the health of our trees or, or are they not just kind of hanging out, taking it easy for this time of year? Well, at this time of year, uh, the foliage falls off most of the trees, so it's easier to see if there's dead wood, what the structure is. Um, but also uh, because of the lack of pests that are active, um, doing pruning at this time of year can be more advantageous uh, for the trees to be able to heal from any wounds from pruning. Right. Is it, are our trees, do you think, are they a little bit stressed right now, given we had those drought conditions and then the cold weather hit so quickly? Um, yes, they're very stressed. We actually, uh, last week with the, uh, the windstorm that came through, we've had trees falling all over the place. So it's just one of the, uh, one of the results that come from, uh, from being drought stressed. So um, mulching and hydrating the, uh, the trees, doing proper watering during the, uh, the drought season, and um, also um, doing fer- fertilizer or deep root feeding, um, slow-release uh, fertilizer, uh, are ways that you can, you can benefit the trees and prepare them for the drought and, um, and keep them in a healthy place. Okay, so let's go through the steps then, because I know you recommend kind of five things for people to do for the trees that they have in their yard at this time of year. So you mentioned one of them there. We'll start with that one, like mulching. How do, what do we do here to make sure our trees are healthy? So for mulching, um, typically uh, there's a higher uh, level of fine roots in mulch. So putting uh, one to four inches of mulch around the base of trees, especially juvenile trees, will help to uh, hold the water in. Um, uh, you don't want to put it up against the trunk. It's got to be uh, placed around. So usually we do two to four feet around the tree, um, which leads us into hydrating. So making sure that it's adequately watered. Um, tree roots go down uh, approximately three feet. So uh, slow watering will get the most benefit. Um, doing a little bit of sprinkling will evaporate pretty quickly um, and then deep root uh, slow fertilize slow release fertilizer um, uh, breaks down at a slow pace and will feed the tree over an extended period right so that's the right. I was just wondering that's why drip irrigation is so much better right exactly uh, the drip irrigation uh, typically it's it's set over a extended period of time and yeah. as a result uh, it takes longer for it to saturate but as a result it goes deeper Okay, so that's the first step then, mulching and hydrating. What about pruning? Is this, this is a good time of year to prune? Yeah, so uh, dormant pruning is probably the best time to do pruning on trees. Um, during the dormant season, uh, as I said, there's very few pests around. Um, so when you do the pruning and you expose the, the tree, um, it's not going to be attacked by pests at that time. Um, also, uh, the for arborists, we can see the structure of the tree uh, a little bit better, so we can we can target certain dead wood that's that might be uh, hidden by the foliage during the summertime. Okay, and you mentioned like keeping pests away. How do we? Are there? I mean, are there, are there, are there things that we can do now to help that in the spring and summer? Yes. So um, pest management. Uh, oftentimes, when you actually see the pests on the tree, uh, it's uh, at a later life cycle. Part, of, part in the life cycle for the pest. 
Um, so there's nothing we can do when you see the pest. So a lot of pest management is preemptively doing the treatment beforehand. So uh, d- applying a dormant oil, uh, it will uh, it'll catch a lot of the larvae uh, for pests that will harm the tree later on in the season. Like what's a dormant oil? I've never heard of that before. So dormant oil, it's a horticultural oil that um, it desiccates uh, any pests in the larval state. So uh, pests have really hard, a lot of the pests, there's a wide variety of them, but they have hard shells on them. And because of that, when they're in their more mature state, um, it takes much more serious um, pesticides to um, to control them. So by getting them in the larval state, uh, it's a very uh, uninvasive um, treatment to just spray a dormant oil. So it's just a basically a very light oil that's sprayed on the tree. Hmm, interesting. Okay. Uh, and what about inspecting and taking a look at our trees? Like, what should we be looking for? Um, so looking for, when when you look at a tree, trees have natural growth structures. So when you see a tree, typically it's that's the way a tree is supposed to look. So oftentimes, uh, if you see something on a tree that doesn't look normal, it usually is a problem. So oftentimes when I'm talking with clients, I'll I'll, uh, advise them that the tree looks good right now, but if anything changes to give us a call to do a further inspection. Um, So if there's drooping in the trees or if there's uh, any mushrooms growing on the trunk of the tree, uh, usually that's an indication that there's rot inside the tree um, or that uh, the structure of the tree isn't uh, working fully. Um, another thing that we look for is dead branches on a certain area of the tree. That can be an indication of something um, a little bit larger than just a dead branch. It could be damaged roots or something else. So uh, during the winter, it's a great time to do inspections on your trees. Is this a good time to shape a tree too? The, the, the shape that you want it to take perhaps in the spring and, and over the next year or two? Definitely. Um, so all of the pruning that you would do during the summer, if you're shaping or trying to uh, develop a vista or or enhance the structure of a tree, this is a great time to do it um, because um, because of all of the benefits of doing the pruning in the dormant season. Okay. And now this time of year, we also know that people are, especially with this week when we saw the snowfall and the ice, they're putting down like salt, right, on their on their walkways. Could that be a problem? Yeah, so um, with trees, uh, they like they draw all their nutrients from the soil. So by putting excessive amounts of salt down and shoveling the the snow that uh, develops on the walkways onto your onto your garden, what you're essentially doing is putting piles of salt onto your garden. So uh, whether it be putting the the snow with the salt off of the uh, off of the uh, um, soil and putting it onto like the the runoff, or just Salting a little bit lighter or using um, using sand rather than salt uh, can be beneficial for for not adjusting the uh, the pH of the soil uh, dramatically. Okay, so just like kind of be careful where you're putting it, essentially. Yeah, uh, so it, it, like if you have to put your shovelings onto uh, a uh, dirt area, it's best to go a little bit lighter on that salt, so you're not changing the the pH of the soil. Okay, and does this apply, would you say, then to all types of trees, Scott, like the, the five things that we just talked about? Yes, uh, all of these are fairly uh, um, broad uh, brush strokes. Um, they, they, these aren't specific to specific trees. 
Um, with the salt one and, and the pests, there are specific trees that uh, have specific pests. So um, there's a variety, there's a wide variety of different pests that can be uh, can be taken care of. And then with the salt, there are some trees that are more susceptible to salt damage. Uh, but general rules, these are good for every for all trees. I wonder though, do some, do some of us not think about that for this time of year? Because you know, per, unfortunately, we turn to it in the springtime, right? When things are growing, we think, oh, now is the time to cut back and start pruning. <laughs> it's it's true. Um, oftentimes in the springtime, we get a, a burst of calls with people looking to do pruning, um, which, like, yes, we can do the pruning at that point. But uh, planning your pruning for the winter season uh, is something that we encourage people to do because of the extra benefit that's added to the tree by doing it at this time of year. All right. Good advice for us, Scott. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you.